Hello and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views with me, Tony Honigberg. Me, John Kay. And me, Clive Roslin. Coming up this week, we have David Hirsch talking about Jeremy Corbyn, who else? And Kate will be talking to Victoria Sturman from Resource. But let's get a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past week with John Kay. Footage has emerged showing Jeremy Corbyn endorsing the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against Israel. He's seen as describing BDS as part and parcel of a legal process that has to be adopted. The film from 2015, just months before Mr Corbyn assumed the party leadership, was taken during a conference in Belfast. He's maintained that he opposes a blanket boycott of Israel, supporting instead only boycotting produce from Israeli settlements. A spokesman for the Labour Party leader said in December that Jeremy is not in favour of a comprehensive or blanket boycott. He doesn't support BDS. He does support targeted action aimed at illegal settlements and occupied territories. Jeremy Corbyn was facing new questions this week over another visit in which he met Hamas members in Jerusalem in 2010 but failed to declare the trip in the Parliamentary Register of Interests. The Labour leader visited Israel in November 2010 with fellow Labour MP Andy Slaughter and Seamus Milne, who's now Mr Corbyn's communications director. More on this from David Hirsch after this bulletin. Donald Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer has alleged the president directed him to arrange the payment of hush money to porn star Stormy Daniels and a former Playboy model to influence the election. Michael Cohen raised the allegations as he pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations and other charges. Mr Cohen's account appears to implicate Mr Trump himself in a crime, though whether or when a president can be prosecuted remains a matter of legal dispute. The guilty plea was part of a double dose of bad news for Mr Trump. It came at almost the same moment his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was convicted in Virginia of eight financial crimes. An auction house is selling an unopened letter that was posted to the home of Anne Frank while she and her family were hiding elsewhere from the Nazis. Bidding on the envelope, which came from an insurance company in 1942, will begin at £440 during the auction, which is scheduled to take place in September in Amsterdam. The letter is testament to the most difficult period in the life of the Frank family, their underground existence. The envelope carries a red return to sender stamp and is addressed to Otto Frank, the teenager's father, and the only member of her nuclear family who survived the Holocaust. When it was sent to the family's home in Amsterdam, the Franks were already in hiding in what is now called the Anne Frank House. Otto Frank died in 1980. And Netta Barzilai, who sang Israel's winning Eurovision song Toy, has hit number one on America's Billboard Dance Club chart. The first time an Israeli artist has topped any of the music industry's magazine's popularity lists. It's an impressive achievement for a singer who was practically unknown outside of Israel before this year. The news this week. Thank you, John. First on the Jewish Views this week, we have Fran Wolfish, who joins us to review your copy of the Jewish News this week. So let's first look at the front page, and it's headed up 400,000. I guess that means we're taking a poll of how many Jews are actually in the UK now, and we looks like it may be up to 400,000. 
Well, I mean, it's, well, it's quite exciting. It's 400,000 exclamation mark for a reason, because currently there are estimated to be 300,000 people who identify themselves as being Jewish. But if the government has its way for the next national census in 2021, there will be a new tick box option for ethnicity, in which case Jewish will be added to that. So you can actually identify as Jewish ethnically and religiously. It is quite a change. The government is thinking through this proposal, so it's not a dead cert. If it does go ahead, what it could mean is that people who currently don't identify as religiously Jewish, they may well want to consider themselves ethnically Jewish. And if they do add themselves under that tick box option, we could see the Jewish population go up by 100,000, which I, is quite significant. I thought most Jewish people thought of themselves as Jewish when they tick a box about... Oh, because it's under religion, isn't it? It, it is actually, under religion. It actually says religion, yeah. doesn't it, in the sense of it doesn't say anything else. Yeah. It's religion. And at the moment, you know, you can identify as white British mm. and you can put your religion down as Jewish, mm. but you can't say that you're ethnically Jewish. And for some people, it does annoy them because they don't go to synagogue, they yeah. don't keep kosher, they don't see themselves as religiously Jewish, they see themselves perhaps as culturally Jewish, or they've got the lineage of coming from a Jewish background. So is there an assumption then that actually a quarter of the Jewish community who do not identify with their religion at all, and who might consider themselves to be ethnically Jewish, that we are missing out one in four of those Jews? That's the suggestion. And certainly north of the border in Scotland, there's been a suggestion that because there isn't a structured community as such, people don't know how to say where they belong to. They don't belong to a formal mm. organisation. So they can't put themselves down as Jewish, even though they identify as Jewish. I mean, it does raise lots of different questions. I've always been brought up thinking I'm white British. Would I now change what I put on the census to Jewish and Jewish? And what exactly is that adding to the data that we already have? And how will that change things? The Board of Deputies, interestingly, are actually not 100% behind this. They feel the status quo is actually better in terms of communal planning seeing this rise of 100,000 could throw everything out in terms of how many schools they need, how many cemeteries they need, and everything else. I wonder if people will consider themselves ethnically Jewish, will they then think, well, maybe they should be sending their children to Jewish schools? Maybe it could be the other way around. It may need to increase the numbers of Bring more people, people into in. the Jewish community. Yeah. When they realise they don't have to be labelled Jewish just because of religion. So yeah. it might bring more people into the wider Jewish world. But if they're happy not using Jewish schools, not eating kosher food, not going to synagogue, they presumably will carry on that way. Mm, so they will continue to send their children to, to mixed schools. <laughs> it's so. a di very difficult one, isn't it? It's an interesting one, though. The biggest question, actually, is I don't actually know why the government <laughs> suddenly, suddenly come, up, come up with this. Why, why do we need another tick box? On the other hand, they, well, you know... I'll, I'll assume that there are other people who consider themselves one thing but ethnically they may consider themselves something else and there's nowhere to put that either yes. so it's probably general but if you do that for jews you'd have to do it for others for example somebody like the home secretary sajid javid who is muslim 
but is not practicing at all. If there was a category for ethnic Muslims rather than religious Muslims, right. he may feel comfortable to put himself down as that. Whereas Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, probably ticked the, the Muslim box under religion. So I don't know if that works for other religions too. Is it? Could, are it, they... could it not be because people are interested, the government is interested in the fact that... Uh, the Labour Party seems to have a lot of anti-Semitism in it and they think it's a way of getting at them. And there was me thinking we could have one week <laughs> where we don't mention Labour or anti-Semitism in the same sentence. But there we are. Shall, shall we I, move swiftly on to something else <laughs> in that case? You've got this Israeli makeup artist who is actually making people up and telling the stories through the makeup. On, on I see a picture of a face, but I presume they're doing full body makeup with this. In some cases, it is full body makeup. Essentially, it's news that you can make up. <laughs> That's the <laughs> exact thing. Michal who's from Israel and her publicist Lubika Karchova together they came up with something called Lubika News where they wanted to deliver the news headlines in makeup in a visual form a picture says a thousand words that kind of thing and they really felt that across the world's media people weren't really understanding Israel's point of view or getting the full picture of what was happening their first collaboration together actually depicts Michal's daughter as the model, first of all, looking like the lush forests of southern Israel in their prime, and then afterwards devastated by these hundreds of firebomb kites that have been sent by Hamas terrorists across the border. So she's really sort of trying to create a visual impact on what is happening in Israel today. Where are they putting these pictures out, photographing after having done them, and then what, Facebook or yes, YouTube? Yes, I mean, it's or going anything? out on sort of, you know, social, social media, media um, but they're just really sort of starting off, and we saw the pictures in the office, and we were sort of blown away by them. Great it is not. very, very powerful, I think, mm -hmm. a very sort of uh, different and new way of showing the news. Great novel idea, of course. And there was a programme on television this week about long lost, well, it's called Long Lost Family, isn't it? And one of our own, Mark Wolf, has found his birth mother, I believe. Yeah, if you haven't actually watched uh, this show on ITV before, I do recommend you do and have hankies at the ready. It really is very emotional. It's presented by Davina McCall and Nikki Campbell. The most recent episode showed Mark Wolfe, 49-year-old from Surrey, searching for his birth mother. He'd been adopted into a Jewish family, grew up in a very nice, close-knit family from North London. Very unfortunately, when he was 16, his adopted mother, Sue, passed away from leukemia. And as he said, it felt that he'd lost two mothers. He had lost his birth mother, now he'd lost his adopted mother. And he really began to question where he'd come from. And so he's helped by the program to try and find his mother after all these years, because he had this thought hanging over him all the time that he'd been abandoned essentially or that his mother had never loved him and that you know if she cared why did she give him up and eventually they do trace his mother Esther who is now living in New Zealand and when they go to visit her she gives a very sort of emotional account of how she was in a relationship with a non-Jewish man her family really didn't approve while she was pregnant she wasn't allowed in the house Essentially, she had no home, no job, no way at all of bringing up this baby on her own. She was 19. She felt she had no option other than to put him up for adoption. But one thing she did do 
was she made sure he was adopted into a Jewish family. That is so interesting. Yeah. When I read that, I thought that was just so interesting. Yeah. I have to say, I've actually seen the programme and it was deeply moving. Absolutely. Did you have the hankies at the ready? Yes, yes absolutely. It, was, it really, really does get to you because even though essentially these people are strangers to you, you can relate to them on a human level, what it must have been like for the mother to have had to give up her child, for the son not to have his mother mm. all those years. And it really is a beautiful thing when you see them reunited again you, after you mentioned so many the mother years. once she was pregnant wasn't allowed back home and it was something to do with her grandmother wouldn't i didn't think it was her mother was it It was the grandmother who well, was so deeply rooted in her parents Judaism. were both affected by the holocaust and there's mention of how it would kill her grandmother if mm. she had this baby out of wedlock and with a non-jewish man so it was literally the worst thing she could Gosh. have done and it's it's such a shame and times have moved on today but i'm sure there are still circumstances oh, sure. where sure there's the still families there that will, will think the same thing yeah absolutely how old is the man now he son? is 49 so he's literally waited nearly half a century mm. to meet his mother <laughs> well, what was interesting as well is that she actually felt the child was going to be taken away from her straight away and in fact he wasn't she had to breastfeed him for nine days and she said, you know, during that time, she really bonded with him as well. So yeah. the pain of having him taken away from her was even greater. Well, that's where we'd have to leave it for this week. But thank you, Fran. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version at jewishnews.co.uk. You're listening to the Jewish Views in association with the Jewish News. And we've just been joined by David Hirsch, who's a senior lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths College, University of London. And he's also the founder of Engage, a campaign against the academic boycott of Israel. David Hirsch, I want to talk to you about Corbyn and his possible anti-Semitism. The first thing is my heart sinks a little because we're talking about a really quite big an interesting and deep phenomenon. And I'm quite reluctant to hang the whole thing on Jeremy Corbyn, who I think is not really a leader. He's not really original. He's not really a thinker. He's a man who for three decades has really found a kind of median position in each debate on the left and has kind of therefore acted as a sort of weather vane for left thinking as a kind of, what should I say? The word median is good. It's, it's, he's kind of taken the middle path. So, firstly, Corbyn is more a symptom than a cause. There is an issue of anti-Semitism, and it, it, it is symbolised by Jeremy Corbyn himself and his own history, his own way of thinking, his own political tradition, and also the people who consider themselves to be his political gang, and the people who have come to the fore, to the leadership with him and the people who've come into the party in order to follow him and in order to put him in charge. So there is certainly an issue. I mean, we can talk more about what the issue is. But he certainly, in his time, he's been a friend of Hamas. Yes, it's well known that he referred to Hamas as friends. And he kind of wormed out of that. He said, look, I'm for peace. I'm, uh, I had the guys in the room and all I was doing was using diplomatic language. But actually, in the same speech in which he's recorded 
referring to Hamas as friends. He also refers to them as dedicated to peace and dedicated to justice, political justice and social justice across the region and Hezbollah too. So in that way, that part of the quote was actually much more telling than his so-called polite language. And of course, his claim to be a man of peace and therefore that explains why he's been in contact with all these people is fundamentally false. He was never a man who was part of chairing a peace process. He was a man who believed in solidarity with what he thought of as the oppressed and who always chose the most extreme manifestations of what he thought of as the oppressed to make solidarity with. So he didn't do solidarity with the SDLP in Northern Ireland. He did it with Sinn Féin. He chooses Hamas as his uh, special comrades. He chooses the Iranian regime to work in their propaganda machine. So his claim to be a sort of disinterested voice for peace is really quite fake. And that was never his selling point. He never came to the fore and said, look, I'm for peace. He came to the fore and he said, I'm radical. I stand with the, the most uh, oppressed and I stand with the most radical voices of the oppressed. And that's who I am. Yeah, but we're talking about not just the oppressed. We're talking about people who are gangsters, if you want, or who are people who have killed people, people like people who killed the Israeli athletes. That is an absolutely proves its point, surely, doesn't it? Well, that was a very clear case. He stood by the grave of some of the people who masterminded the attack on the Israeli athletes in 1972. And he didn't say what he might have said. He didn't say, well, these guys had later become part of the peace process. He didn't say, well, I support the Palestinians. But he fudged and he fuddled and he said, no, I wasn't there or I might have been there, but I wasn't really part of it and I might have laid a wreath and I don't know. But this is a smear. So his key response was always a kind of fuddled response. And the key response is to turn it back on the people making the point and saying that there's something wrong with them. But in answer to your question, yes, he laid a wreath at the memorial to the leadership of Black September. So what happens if he, if he were to become the leader of the governing party and indeed prime minister? What would affect Israel? if you like, Jews, and all the things that he more or less implied yeah. that he didn't particularly care for? Well, I think that's a really difficult question. I think we could look at some concrete issues which we might worry about. For example, there might be a worry about the Jewish schools. For example, there might be a worry about political and other support for the boycott movement. For example, there might be a worry about what Britain would do with its Security Council veto. So there are all kinds of practical, immediate things which a Corbyn government might make us worry about. But I would be more worried about the things that we can't immediately foresee. What the Corbyn movement is doing, I think, in, in a similar way to the Brexit movement and the Trump movement, is they are unpacking a whole load of things which we had packed away. Anti-Semitism, racism, xenophobia, and a certain kind of nationalism which blames foreigners for things that go wrong in Britain. And the Corbyn movement is part of that. So the question 
what is the real threat of a Corbyn leadership? The real threat is that certain kinds of anti-Semitic expression are becoming kosher again, are becoming uh, mainstream, are becoming thinkable in the mainstream of British politics. And as we possibly move into a time of economic and political crisis, the unleashing of anti-Semitism as a political force is really, really dangerous. And I don't think we can know exactly how that might play out. It's dangerous in itself. So you're not saying that it might well end up as Germany did under Hitler. It's not that bad. I didn't mention Germany under Hitler at all. And I think I, I think it's quite an interesting point. I think history does repeat itself, but it never repeats itself as we think it might. So there are all kinds of elements that we've seen in previous anti-Semitic movements, in previous populist movements, in movements which are contemptuous of the democratic state. There are all kinds of things we're seeing which we have seen before, but it's impossible to say that, of, of course, history doesn't just happen again as it happened before. It's unpredictable. So there are elements from the past, from Stalinist Russia, for example, which are repeating themselves in the ways of thinking which are coming, which are coming to the fore. But certainly we shouldn't expect things to just repeat straightforwardly and simply as, as we've seen them before. But they will be unpleasant. They might be unpleasant. I mean, I'm hoping that the populist uprising the anti-Semitism, the hostility to Jews and the Jewish community, which we're seeing at the moment, the Islamophobia, the anti-democratic politics, I'm hoping that we can defeat it. And I'm hoping it won't be unpleasant. I'm hoping that the people who want freedom and liberty will win. But that's not guaranteed at the moment. There's a question mark over that today, I think, in a way that even three years ago would have been almost unthinkable. What would you do to try and fight it? Well, I think that what we're looking at fundamentally in all of the populist movements, in the Corbyn movement, but also the Trump movement, also possibly, I mean, I think Theresa May will come unstuck with her plans to roll smoothly onto Brexit. I think the Tory party, I think Boris Johnson has his eye on the Tory party, and I think he thinks his best chance might be to kind of go full Trump. So after he had a meeting with one of Trump's key advisors, Steve Bannon, and Steve Bannon's advice in uh, France to Le Pen openly was say racist things, get called a racist and own it, and you it will make you popular. And uh, straight after Johnson had, had been in discussions with Bannon, Johnson came out with this stuff about Muslim women and letterboxes and bank robbers. So what I'm saying is that there are similar challenges to the democratic state and democratic status quo and democratic norms and equality and all of these things which we take for granted coming from both the left and the right. And what we need, I've said, I've tried to use the slogan before, we need to make democracy sexy again. We need to say, actually, there are people all around the world who yearn for the kind of freedom and liberty and welfare state and education system and health system that we in Europe and largely in America have built. And we need to say there's something really important and really strong in, in the post-war political system in Europe. And we need to be afraid of losing it. 
because I think there's too little fear around in politics today. George Orwell famously said that so much of left-wing politics is a kind of playing with fire by people who don't even understand that fire is hot. And I think there's much too little fear about what we might lose than there ought to be. Whenever anybody makes an analogy with Germany or Hitler, they always come unstuck usually. Do you think Dame Margaret Hodge was right to speak the other week as she did in an interview with Sky News about the fear that her parents felt in Germany in the 1930s and comparing it to what she has experienced in the Labour Party recently? I think there's a number of extraordinary reversals happening, and that illustrates one of them. So we've said for many years now, we've said that to denounce Israel and the Jews who are said to support Israel as Nazis is a disgrace. When Ken Livingston did it, when Moshe Machover did it, other people in the Labour Party did it, we said that what this does is it creates a way of thinking that trains people, teaches people to think of Jews as they think of Nazis and to exclude them and to be up on their guard against them. And that's why we said that that, for example, is often a kind of anti-Semitic way to behave. And then it gets kind of reversed and turned back on Jews. So what happens often, I mean, anti-Semites have always positioned themselves not as aggressors against Jews, but as the victims of the Jews. So we had that, that Jeremy Corbyn himself was positioned as the victim of Margaret Hodge, which was a reversal. Yes, Margaret Hodge was speaking out against anti-Semitism and she was portrayed as the aggressor. Corbyn was portrayed as the victim. And then she said, look, this experience of being up against the bureaucracy in the Labour Party, this big, strong, faceless machine which began proceedings against me, which tried to discipline me for what? For speaking out against anti-Semitism. She said this experience of being up against the powerful bureaucracy resonated in my head and it resonated with the kinds of stories that I was brought up with, right? And instead of people saying, ah, I can understand that Jews might be particularly worried about anti-Semitism. I can understand that they might be particularly worried about being faced with disciplinary charges for saying so. And I've experienced this myself in the university and college union, I can tell you about later. So I know exactly what, what she's feeling. And she says there are resonances. And then people take this thing that we've said, which is don't use the Nazis, the Holocaust, as a stick to bash Jews. And then people have reversed that and they've said that Jews are not allowed to remember the experience of anti-Semitism by referring to their own family history in Europe. So all kinds of really rather frightening reversals, which are kind of slippages of language. Coming back to Jeremy Corbyn's association with terrorist organisations, isn't that partly, and he's not actually saying this, because he actually supports what they're doing. So whether it is the IRA in Northern Ireland and a united Ireland, or whether it is in the Middle East, he might on the one hand say, oh, I condemn all killing, but actually he understands why they do kill. He yep. sympathises with why they do kill. Yep. 
So how do we understand, how can we possibly understand that a man who is regarded as progressive and de democratic and for the weak and the oppressed, how can we understand his support for racist, anti-Semitic, misogynist, anti-gay movements? How is it possible? And actually, I think in, in a way it's not complicated. So Jeremy Corbyn comes out of this political tradition, which comes originally from the Soviet Union, actually, a Stalinist political tradition, also a tradition which is quite well developed within the intellectual left within the universities. And it begins with this idea that we need to divide the world into two. The real evil on the planet is not Hezbollah or the IRA or Hamas or anything like that. The real aggressor on the planet is imperialism. And you should keep your eye on that ball, right? So imperialism is this global machine and you can call it capitalism or you can call it modernity, call it what you like. It is this global machine which impoverishes, which causes war, which causes people to be alienated from their labor process, which causes people not to have health care, which makes people miserable, right? So keep your eye on that ball. And then anyone who kind of supports the global system of imperialism, colonialism, modernity, whatever you want to call it, is considered to be the real aggressor. And anyone who opposes it, be it Hamas, be it Hezbollah, be it the Iranian state, be it the IRA, anyone who says that they're part of a global coalition against this big murderous machine, imperialism, capitalism, modernity, anyone who says they're against that is kind of on our side. So let me ask you finally, are we going to end up with this sort of situation in this country or not? In your opinion? Well, I don't know. I think there are real dangers. I think there are real dangers that all kinds of ideas and assumptions are becoming normal in the way we think politically, which weren't normal before. So I think racism, anti-Semitism, a kind of radical move against the democratic state, a radical nationalism, which closes our borders and says British jobs for British workers and says that we're not really in coalition with Germany and France and America, but actually we're somehow going to separate ourselves off. I think all of those things are... Here's an analogy for you. The populism has made our state and our way of life flammable. And people like Jeremy Corbyn are playing with matches. That's what I would say. Thank you very much indeed. If you would like any more information on any of the stories or indeed the guests that you've heard in this episode of The Jewish Views, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Victoria, do remind us what Resource actually does. I mean, I know we, we, we've spoken before in the past, but uh, just, just so that we know. Resource is a charity that's based in northwest London, and we help unemployed people into the workplace. We're helping people with a variety of different workshops and seminars and one-to-one -one support from an advisor. And who are these advisors? Each of our advisors has got experience and, and skills in helping people, specifically people who are unemployed, into the workplace. They come from a very, very wide variety of backgrounds, but all of them are recruited and trained for their skills in helping people on a one-to-one -one basis. They're a, 
a cross between a coach, a mentor, an advisor, a shoulder to cry on, somebody to have a difficult conversation if that is needed. But essentially, they are the go-to person, the support person, uh, the point of contact within resource. So when somebody contacts you via the phone, presumably, or the website, they will be allocated an advisor. That's right. Everybody who comes to resources is allocated an advisor who is their point of contact throughout resource. They normally would see them on a face-to-face basis, but sometimes they'd have conversations on the phone, via Skype, often a bit of email contact within appointments or between appointments. And everybody's unemployed. That's right. People who come to resource are unemployed. They may be what we might call underemployed. Sometimes there are people who are, have a part-time job or have some, some work, but not enough to make ends meet. But essentially, our services are provided during the working day. Now, normally when we think of the working population, we tend to think of, you know, kind of 25 plus. But you're putting on an event which is going to be for the younger audience. Tell us a bit about that. That's right. Whilst we help, resource helps people from all ages, we've got school leavers uh, right through to people in their 60s and 70s. We're doing a particular workshop in September that's called Leave Uni, Start Work, Make It Happen. This is particularly aimed at students at university and new graduates as well if they haven't yet found a job. And the reason for doing this is we had quite a number of people come to us having finished university with their degree, um, really feeling stuck and ill-prepared. And we really think that we can help people sooner, that if we start people thinking much sooner in their university career about their employability skills, about their CV, work experience and things, then they won't come to us at the end of their degree feeling stuck and feeling isolated. Presumably, they must have some sort of advice at university. How does resource help them to sort of segue, if you like, into a job? There's certainly some advice available at university. Careers advice services are available to students. But what we're offering is a programme of activities for students. So this workshop is almost the springboard to people's access to resource. So at this workshop, they will get some information about what recruiters look for, how to make their CV stand out, how to um, have their interview skills. We'll be helping people with their own individual CV and we'll also be creating video CVs for people. But what we'll also do at this workshop is talk to people about resources, activities and programmes beyond the workshop. So students will be able to come back to us during their holidays and when they finish their degree for more tailored and individual help on their CV, on their interview skills, on their networking skills. And we'll be with them almost like a helping hand. It could be at the end of the phone or face to face when they come back um, if, or if they're based in London, ready to pick up where they left off. I've got to ask you about this. You said a video CV. I'm slightly horrified because if I'd been sort of 21 years old, asked to produce a video, seriously, people are being asked to do this now? They are. So um, one of the um, options available to recruiters is to ask candidates to upload their video CV. It gives them more than just a piece of paper, which is very sort of two dimensional. This gives them um, an idea of what the person looks like, how they come across. And one of our collaborators on this event, Ben Rosen, who is the CEO and founder of Inspiring Interns, they specialize in creating video CVs. So he and his team are going to come along to the event. Ben is our Um, guest speaker on the night but they're going to help candidates create their own video CV. I think I'm going to have to come to this. I'm a bit bit frightened. So what's the format of it and does one have to pay and when is it? 
The event is in September. It's between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when uh, we hope all students will be at home for Yontif. It's the 13th of September for, at six o'clock. It's at Ort House, which is a few minute walk from Camden Town Station. You do need to book a place and booking is available via our website. Our website is resource-center.org and the event is called Make It Happen. There is a very small, a nominal fee of £4, reserve a place, and the event will be in the format of a series of speakers, a series of workshops, and a chance to have book in in advance for a one-to-one advice session on your CV and a one-to-one video CV. When a young person comes, what do you notice these days that tends to be something that's holding them back? What sort of what sort of issues could be holding them back from going into the workplace? I think there's a variety of issues. Sometimes it's the ability to sell themselves and the confidence. So, for example, it's very important to have achievements on your CV. And, and sometimes people really take a while to tease out of them their achievements. You know, they, they might have done the most fantastic things at school and college and university, but they don't necessarily realize, see the relevance to the workplace. Another thing that's holding people back, I think, is their ability to prepare for an interview we talk to people who've had lots of been invited to lots of different interviews, so their CV is obviously doing something well for them. But then each time the interview eludes them or, or the job eludes them, and that's often a lack of preparation. So really, we will teach people how to prepare, the type of questions that are likely to come up, how to prepare very good answers, but also just a very good preparation on the company itself, more than just reading a website. So in this evening, the Leave Uni, Start Work, Make It Happen, great title, People will be going off to, to workshops focusing on a specific area. I presume that's what a workshop is. It's like a breakout, focusing on a specific area that, that they feel is maybe something they need improving on. Yes, in fact, what we've decided to do is run it so that all of the delegates will come to all of the workshops. They'll be very short. They'll be about 15 minutes each, and each one is relevant. But we'll start off with a journey through the job market. How does the job market work? What do recruiters look for? What are the important dates people need to be aware of? For example, when are internships typically applied for, when a grad scheme's applied for. We'll also talk about what to do if you're not going to apply for a grad scheme. What are all the other alternatives available, of, of which there are many, um, so alternate career paths as well. So this isn't just for people, though we've called it Leave Uni. It may be for young people who are thinking of apprenticeships or going into other areas of the workplace. Yes, absolutely. And Jewish people, can they, presumably they should be advertising this around their, their own campuses? Yes, certainly. So we're delighted to be partnering with UJS on this initiative. UJS, who are the, the voice of Jewish students, they are going to be canvassing the students on campus. They will be doing mail shots, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter to reach students as well. And so this is available to all Jewish students. Having said that, people can bring their friends along as well. They don't need to be Jewish to attend the event. So this event will be something that will highlight those areas that maybe even they can need to focus on more. How would then, would they go back to resource? Would they be able to, to get further back up from you? Yes. Yeah, so the idea of this event is it's starting them thinking about what they need to do. So for example, they might be just going into their second year um, and thinking they should get a, a summer job or some work over the Christmas holidays. And rather than just any old job that they might see advertised working in the bar or in the local shopping centre, 
This will help them think about really what do they need to be doing now at this stage of their career that will help them when it comes to looking for a job. So it might be if there's a particular career path they want to take, then we'll help them think about what type of summer job they need to get. In terms of accessing resource later, we will talk to them at this workshop about the different things that resource offers and how that they can come to the resource as a service. Thank you very much. 13th of September at Ort House. I think I'm going to have to be there. I'm going to have to put some pigtails on or something. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. If you would like to get in contact about any of the stories you've heard on this show, then we'd love to hear your Jewish views. Email studio at jewishviews.co.uk. On Facebook, go to facebook.com forward slash the Jewish views. On Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK, or you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Currently on at the Edinburgh Festival is Daniel Kainer, who's starring in his own show called Old Dog New Shtick. And indeed, it's coming to London at the Green Note in Camden on the 2nd of September. Whether it's called that or gefilte fish and ships, we're uh, about to find out. But let's join Daniel, who joins us from Edinburgh. Uh, Daniel, how well is the show going in Edinburgh? Well, it's going very well. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's a question that everybody asks of everybody else in Edinburgh. How's it going? And the answer is usually, uh, you know, up and down, <laughs> open bracket, moan, moan, Edinburgh, 3,700 shows. How on earth does anybody know either what to see or what to do or how to get those people in to see it? It's just a con- it's like it's a, it's absolute sort of bun fight, really. And all of the best and worst of human nature is here. So the answer, in short, is it's going great. And by this a bit up and down, but people that are coming in seem to be really enjoying what I'm doing, and that's that's what that's what I'm here for. It's a bit of a Jewish answer, isn't it? Really, when you say, "Well, it's not bad; it could be better." <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Well, it's 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 uh, um, how fitting. Funnily enough, I mean, there are a lot of other Jewish shows up here this year more than I'm this is my 14th year doing a a show in Edinburgh but so at one point like I was the only person with a Jewish show here and now everybody's doing it and is there more of an interest because it sort of involves Jewish humor or perhaps maybe for the wrong reasons because of all the controversy there's been in the Labour Party about anti-Semitism yeah I, I don't think that's the case I think it is mostly just Jewish entertainers finding an angle and using it and exploiting it, if you like. And there's always Jewish people passing through Edinburgh that want to see Jewish stuff. And I, I haven't really seen that as um, in this wide world, of course, in ours, in our echo chamber. You know, it's huge, of course. But I think mostly in terms of the public, it's not quite on, as high on their priority list as it is for us. But interestingly, I did have a piece, a song actually about uh, Jeremy Corbyn, which I put in the show for the first three or four performances. And whilst it was nothing wrong with it, and it was a rather good song that I said myself, I took it out just because it required too much setup. The whole complex nuances and history of that, this whole business leading up to this moment and all the detail just required a load of explaining otherwise nobody would have got the references or the jewish people there might have done but i'm playing to a a very mixed audience up here and what do your songs tend to sort of center around they're mostly family stories actually 
and what it's like being brought up is sort of Jewish and the flavour of it, although really their human interest, I mean, the human condition is the same across the whole spectrum. It's just how it happens that our mind stuff has a, a Jewish flavour to it. And so Jewish people get a kind of, they respond to some of the, certainly some of the music, the musical quality, the rhythmic quality to it, and all, lots of the little references, but it still passes and perfectly reasonably as a story for anybody that isn't but it is about it's about family is what it is and it's about belonging and also you know there are, and there are references of what it feels like to be jewish both then and now and when you're performing in edinburgh compared to when you're performing in london in london you may get more of a jewish audience so would your material be different to, to that in edinburgh no, it's, it's all exactly the same. Funnily enough, I, I get less work in London just because there's so much going on, but I'm in America a lot of the time. And so the same question might apply to that. And I don't, so I don't actually change the uh, content. I might do a little bit of quick translation of certain terms before. In fact, what I say to both, both countries, actually, is I say in the UK, I have to explain a lot of the, explain a lot of the Jewish references. And when I'm in America, I have to explain the English. <laughs> but essentially, it's the same story. Stuff because it's by its very nature, this where that I write it is inclusive for everybody, so uh, that's what we do. Well, the show is on in Edinburgh until the 27th of August, and then Daniel is appearing in Camden at the Green Note on the 2nd of September. Daniel Kane, thanks very much indeed for joining us from Edinburgh this week. Thanks for having me, John. That's nearly it for this episode of The Jewish Views, but it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week which comes for the last time from Rabbi Michael Evan David of Edgware Masorti Synagogue. The Sedra of Kitete has a slightly depressing beginning. It says there, Kitetela when you go out to war against your enemies. It doesn't say if, but when. The Torah assumes that the war will always be a part of our life, and only clarifies that even in war, there are rules and commandments we are supposed to follow. Not everything goes in war. And talking about war, towards the end of our Sedra, we found a famous text we read each year before Purim, instructing us to remember what Amalek, the archetype of the enemies of Israel, did to us as we left Egypt. Amalek decided to kill us by attacking the weak people lagging behind, and we went to war against them. The commandment is to exterminate Amalek, and it is a difficult one to understand with modern eyes and sensitivities, and we struggle every year to find a meaningful message for us. After the commandment to remember what Amalek did to us, the next few verses tell us, strangely, to wipe out the memory of Amalek from this world. So which one is it? Should we remember what they did to us? Or should we wipe out their memory and forget? And then again, at the end, the Torah ordered us not to forget. Our rabbis explained that human nature dictates that the more we see of something, the less sensitive we are to it. The more we see atrocities in the TV, the less affected we are by it. How can we work ourselves to avoid becoming insensitive? 
The Torah tells us to remember, erase, and yet remember. Remember those people and groups in this world who will pick on the weak and defy God's love for all men, who don't appreciate all life as sacred, but only so that you can erase them, meaning erasing their influence. The final step is to never forget what happens when we allow negative ideas or attitudes to influence us, how that path can take us to become the very same enemy we are supposed to fight against. We are influenced by our society, neighborhood, and by our friends. However, just as we must be careful not to let ourselves be affected by anything negative, we must also remember that we can have ourselves a positive or negative effect on those around us. May we have the strength to always be a good influence in the world, to remember, erase, and never forget. Thank you to Rabbi Michael Evan David of Edgewood Masorti Synagogue for the, our thought for the week. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to our guests, Victoria Sturman from Resource, David Hirsch, Daniel Kainer, and Fran Wolfish of The Jewish News. Thank you to our producer, Sue Greenberg, and indeed to you at home for listening. You can always listen to this episode or any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. For me, Clive Roslin. Me, John Kay. And me, Tony Honigberg. Join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.